You're listening to Why Try, the podcast. I'm your host, Nicholas Peel, and each week I sit down with entrepreneurs, artists, and others who have found that betting on themselves has made all the difference. I had an absolute blast talking with Girl Mostral. Just to give you an overview of the topics, he talks about creating his winery, Villa Catalana, which is modeled after an old Spanish monastery in Catalonia. I was lucky enough to tour the place, and it is absolutely beautiful. Beyond that, he shares the story also of how he created Rare Plants Research, which is his mail-order nursery. And in the last part of this podcast, we get into some kind of philosophical stuff where he has very practical insights for people thinking about following and finding their passion. I really liked your conversation, and I hope you will too. So would you mind introducing yourself? Yeah, Burl Mostel. And uh, can you tell me a little bit about what you've built here and what makes it unique? Yeah, well, um, it all started many years ago. Uh, with my first trip to Europe back in uh, 1976, I got introduced to Romanesque architecture back then and just absolutely fell in love with some of the castles and so forth that I saw. And then eventually I married my current wife in the 90s. And on our second date, we were wandering around looking at um, at houses just kind of after dinner. And we both realized we had the same sort of taste. We both like stone houses. And so uh, eventually when we started looking for property, we were keeping the Romanesque architecture in mind as a style. And so that's what we built here. And so our inspiration was a 12th century church in Catalonia in Spain. And so that's, that's, that was our inspiration. And then along the way, after uh, we built the house, we also have a nursery. And the, the economy went, um, went bad in 2008 and 9 and 10. And so we started thinking about doing something else. And just on a whim, a friend and I decided to make some wine. And so we did and made three batches. One was good, one was okay, and one was terrible. And I learned a little bit about how to not to make terrible wine. And then the next year, I wanted to make it again, and he didn't want to. And so... Uh, so I end up not being able to find grapes, and I thought, well, this is not going to work. And so uh, I got uh, introduced to a fellow that had some a little vineyard near Molala, and ended up buying his grapes and made fantastic wine. It was a bad year, and in spite of that, the wine was so good, we ended up drinking it all before we even got it bottled. <laughs> so then I realized, oh, the key to making good wine is starting with good grapes. And so that's sort of been the the process ever since. I've learned a lot since then, but that's kind of what what inspired all this. Our goal was to make it look like peasants built it 900 years ago, because the church that was our inspiration was um, consecrated in 1123, so that was a long time ago. In fact, we visited that area of Spain. It's in the, in the um, Pyrenees, and there's like, in this one little valley where this particular church is, there's like a dozen other churches and they're all real small but very consistent in terms of style. So the whole area actually is a UNESCO um, heritage site now. So it's a pretty pretty amazing thing you just don't find here in this country. How did you uh, age it? Well, um, in terms of broken concrete, what we did is we sprayed it with a dilute solution of moss begone. And so what it does is it gives a little bit of a slight amber color to the broken concrete. Now, the, the stone on the house is nothing's been done to that. Although we used um, three different styles of stone rather than most, well, actually most buildings that, are, that look like stone nowadays are actually made out of cement that's colored and they just glue it onto the side of the house. But this is real stone. This took like two months to put that stone on. And so it has all the imperfections and, and character that you would expect from you know, a handmade stone wall, essentially. And so that helps also make it look old because you know, peasants wouldn't have um, had the skills to do uh, the work like you would maybe with the, the, a Gothic architecture where the stone is cut and it's very precise and so forth. But this is rustic. Romanesque uh, style is pretty rustic style. So how did you learn all of this? Well, um, <laughs> just sort of by trial and error. And, and I grew up on a farm. And so um, grow, actually not too far from here, about 15 miles from here. And uh, growing up on the farm, you learn about how to do a lot of things that uh, most people wouldn't learn how to do. And you, have, you learn it by necessity. Because um, if you're a farmer, you, you know, you've got the whims of the weather. And if something breaks down, you may not have the money to fix it. So you got to figure out how to fix it. Or maybe you need a piece of equipment, but, there's, but nobody makes it. So you've got to invent it. And so I learned a lot of that from my father. But I think probably, I, I think to learn, you have to be willing to make mistakes. And so when 
so if you want to try something new, like, like building this house, for instance, I'd never built a house before. Now, when I was in college, in the summer times, I'd worked in construction, so I, I knew a fair amount, and then I learned a lot as I, of course, we, we built the house. But I think the main obstacle is to forgive yourself if it doesn't turn out right. <laughs> you know, because a lot of times people, you know, they want to be successful with what they're doing. And so if you do something and it doesn't turn out, then you feel like, well, that was a waste. I wasted my time. And then people will sometimes beat themselves up like, why did I even try that? I should have known better that I couldn't have done that. And, and so they beat themselves up. And then next time they have a dream or they have something that they want to do that maybe they don't know how to do, they go, well, forget it. it, didn't turn out good last time, so I'm just not going to do that. And so the person kind of loses confidence, I guess. And so to learn how to do this, for instance, uh, I consulted a lot of books. I had uh, an engineer friend that I asked a, a, a lot um, from to explain like some things in the plans that I didn't understand. And so it's mostly you just go at it with an attitude as, okay, I need to figure this out. and. Um, if worse comes to worse, I can always hire somebody to do it. And so there was always a backup plan if I couldn't figure it out. But with building this, this house, it took a little over a year, there was only one time where I had really a, lo a lot of difficulty, and that was doing the plumbing. And it was because uh, you, you'd think plumbing would be really easy, but there's all kinds of different fittings and parts that you have to use that are specific to, to plumbing that you just can't use any plumbing fitting. And so every time I would put something in, the inspector would come and look and he would say like, why'd you put that there? And I said, well, it works. He goes, no, no, you got to change that. You got to, you know, put this other in. So the inspector and I went around and around quite a few times and he wasn't very helpful, unlike the other inspectors who were very helpful. And so it was a little discouraging. And I remember putting it off for like, a month <laughs> until finally I went back and started working on it again. And you know, part of it is just taking it a day at a time, you know. Um, and the other thing too is you got to have a sense of humor. Uh, one of the fellows that worked for me, um, Jose, I had up to, to five guys that, that helped me on this and none of us were, were skilled at it. So I would learn it first and then teach them and I'd work with them. And then if they got it, then I would go on to another project. Well, one of the things that happened with Jose, he was sort of my right-hand man. And so we did a lot of things together. And so one time we came up into a problem that he just could not figure out, you know, what to do. And he goes, is it lunchtime yet? And it was sort of like lightened up the thing. It was like, oh, and it was lunchtime. And so we had lunch, you know, and you kind of relaxed a little bit. And then uh, coming back after lunch, we figured out the problem and we got it solved. So that's sort of how, how, how you do, to me, or at least how my process is, you know, you got to have the confidence to try it and to forgive yourself if it doesn't turn out the way you hoped it would, you know. And fortunately, if you uh, are pretty, have a lot of common sense and sort of know how things go together, there's a good chance that you're gonna, you know, you're gonna be successful. But like I say, also, also, it's good to have a backup plan. If you can't figure it out, it's really good <laughs> to have somebody, you know, that you can call or somebody that could do it in that particular thing for you. So, can you talk a little bit about what what you started with here? Well, we started with a hayfield. Um, it was just pasture. It hadn't even been mowed for a couple of years. It's 14 acres, and. Um, uh, in fact, we, my wife and I looked for property for two years and never found what we were looking for. We were looking for about five acres with maybe like that had been part of an old farmstead with a teardown house and a barn maybe that could be salvaged and some mature trees. And we looked for two years here in Oregon and in Southwest Washington and never found anything during that two years. And we happened to be looking at another piece of property. We drove by this property and saw the sign that it was for sale. And we went, oh, well, that's 14 acres. That's more than we want. And there are no trees. Uh, well, forget it. Well, so a month or so went by and we, we still hadn't found anything. And so my wife says, well, let's go out and take a look at that again. And so, so we did. And this time we looked and we looked a little more seriously and we walked around the property and we went, well, you know, you could put a house up on the, on the, the hill part and you put the, the nursery, the greenhouses down below. And we sort of went, hmm. And so we started getting the idea that maybe this would work. And so eventually we, we put an offer on it and then, and we got it. 
Um, and the thing about this property, it's, it's a zoned exclusive farm use. And so in Oregon, you have to qualify to build, uh, to get a building permit to build on, on, on ag land. And so we already knew we would qualify because of the, the money we'd made from uh, working an acre and a half in our, our nursery when we were in Portland. And so, um, so the next step then was essentially a series of ideas and inspirations. So once we figured out that the house would, where the house would go, then we were just sitting one day looking. It was still just a hayfield. We hadn't started on anything. And I said, wow, wouldn't it be neat if we could like put a pond in here? And the house would sort of overlook a pond. And, and so we didn't know anything about it. We didn't know if there's any water. And so um, I had the idea that we could use runoff from the roof of the house and runoff from the greenhouses and pump it into the, to a pond. And so I talked to the water master for um, uh, the state water master, and he said, "Well, all the water for Beaver Creek's been allocated, and so there's really not much chance that we can give you a permit to dig that." He says, "But I'll come out and take a look." So we came out and walked the property, and he says, "I can't find any evidence that water from your property goes into Beaver Creek, so we'll give you a permit to dig the pond." And so little did we know, we dug the pond uh, about three quarters of the way that first year. Uh, actually, a neighbor down the road um, had the equipment and dug it, and he excavated for where the house is. And then we, about November, December, it started raining a lot, and water started running down the hill from our neighbors. And by middle of December, the pond was completely full and running over. <laughs> And all of a sudden we realized, oh, we have plenty of water here. <laughs> and so eventually what happened then is we got a permit to dig another pond. And the idea was to use the water for irrigation. And we liked the two ponds being full so much that we got a permit about four or five years ago to dig a third pond. And you can see from here it's about half full where we use uh, that, we use that for, for irrigation. Um, and so it got started one idea after another until we end up with where we are today. So none of it was, we didn't sit down with a piece of paper and plan all this out. In fact, my mind doesn't work that way. You know, landscape architects can do that, but I can't. I mean, I, I need, uh, I, one, one idea inspires another. And my wife and I both uh, like to visit other people's gardens, both um, private gardens and um, public gardens. We visit them actually all over the world. And it's amazing, sometimes you see a certain aspect of the, of, the, of the garden that you really like and it really inspires you and then you get an idea from that and then you come back and you can incorporate that into your garden. Uh, the garden in front of that boulder garden over that was inspired by the Brazilian landscape architect um, Roberto Burley Marx from, um, uh, from uh, Rio de Janeiro, actually from Sao Paulo. Um, he's passed on now, but he was instrumental in the 50s uh, doing uh, sort of a modernist design. And anyway, so he had a, did a, a, a garden he called the Garden of Volumes that I just absolutely loved. And so my inspiration for that garden was his garden. Although it looks completely different. People, if you look, if I told them that that was the inspiration, they, they probably would see it. But if I didn't tell them, it looks so different that, that they wouldn't get it. You just pick up inspirations just wherever you find it. And that's what's important. You never know when you're going to be inspired for, by something, whether it's a garden, in this case, or architecture, like in terms of the, the house. And you probably noticed the hermitage over there. Um, you know, you never know. And so to me, the importance is always being open for inspiration. So was there a point in like creating all of this where it really started to, to come together and click where you saw like what it could be? Um, I think the, it, it started, I really started seeing how it was, would look when we finished the walls in 2006. There's walls, there's about 600 feet of broken concrete uh, walls, about a good 50 dump truck loads of, of uh, broken concrete. Um, and so once we got those walls in, it's like it started having the feel that we wanted. And I'm thinking, wow, hmm, this is this is going to be pretty neat. Um, and then when we started the house, uh, well, the house didn't look like much really until we got the stone on it. But once we got the stone on, it was like, oh, this is way better than what we had planned. <laughs> <laughs> so sometimes in life that happens. Usually it happens the other way. It's not nearly as good as what you were hoping. But in our case, uh, whether it was by fortune or luck or who knows what, it actually turned out better than we had anticipated. Um, in fact, it's, it's much, because we end up with 14 acres rather than the original five that we're looking for, um, our vision expanded exponentially because of that. And so as a result, 
the gardens and everything is much more expansive than what we originally had planned on. So what do you see in the future? Well, um, I'm uh, actually going to put in another little um, raised bed garden and a little fountain on the south side uh, over by the vegetable garden. But most of, the, most of it really, the, the, I'm not really planning on doing any major things. That's sort of major, but um, now we're mostly just, you know, maintaining it. And um, we, uh, we're open for wine tasting uh, one day a week. And people uh, come, and uh, if our chef isn't doing lunch that day, they um, bring a picnic and hang out. And, um, and our goal now at this point, I guess, is to um, inspire people, whether they get inspired to do their own garden, which, which is what we would like, um, but they may be inspired just, um, just to feel better, I guess. Um, because when people come here, we, we had no idea that it was going to affect them the way it does. But there are so many people come here and are so appreciative. And I sort of developed this little theory now that when people are surrounded by uh, beauty that they can really um, um, uh, sort of resonate with, it sort of helps their psyche get into a sort of a better, um, a better spot. So it brings out the, the, the better side of them, I think. And so, uh, so consequently, people come, they have a, um, an experience that they really like, and I think they go home just a little bit better for it. And it's, it's interesting, sometimes we, uh, well, a little short little story here. A fellow came uh, to the nursery and wanted to buy some plants. And normally we're not open to the public. We're, well, we're open to the public a couple of times a year. Um, but, um, uh, but he wanted to come and I wasn't doing, doing much that day. And I said, sure, come. And so he came and he uh, was looking at plants in the greenhouse. He was building a desert garden. And so um, I... Um, you know, I told him, well, if you would like, you could look at our desert garden and maybe you give you some ideas. And he says, oh, well, thank you. I'd really like to. But my wife came along and uh, she um, really didn't want to come, but she was going to um, uh, talk to her folks uh, on her phone, but she didn't have cell phone coverage. And so, so she's really, really wants to leave. And I said, oh, okay. So I realized what was happening there. And so he, I didn't even realize actually she was in the car because he had parked where I couldn't see him. So he pulls the car around and I see her in the car and she's pretty looks looks pretty uh dejected and and sort of frustrated and so forth and it was like oh it's a bad day and so i said well are you sure i mean he says if you can go up if you go up there um i can almost guarantee you that she will be in a better mood he goes oh no 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 thanks anyway blah, blah, blah. and i could see she looked dejected and so forth and so after a while just before i left he says okay so they come up and they're up here for like I don't know, 15, 20 minutes, something like that. They drive back down. He stops the car, gets out of the car. He smiles. She smiles. She says, I want to thank you so much. We're both in a better mood now. And I thought, wow, you know, looking at something um, can help people get out of a, a funky mood or maybe a depressed mood or, uh, or just feeling like, you know, life is terrible and, you know, what's good about life and my life and that sort of thing. I'm going, wow, you know, if... If an environment can help bring out the better side of a person, wow, that's really that's really valuable, I think. And so that's kind of what happens sometimes here. And so we're we're just um, we didn't plan it that way, but it just sort of happens. We're really following our own aesthetic in terms of garden design and so forth. And the, the garden design is kind of a mixture of things. There's a, a lot of, of sort of um, um, Southern European look to, uh, to the garden, but like the, the, the desert garden, the boulder garden, really looks more like the Southwest, you know, and then the areas around the house look more like a, maybe a Northwest garden. And this, this garden right in front of us here, we call it the terrace garden. We uh, call it our, our succulent garden. It looks more like San Diego. <laughs> so there's a wide variety of different styles that we have done just because that's what we like. And fortunately, other people have liked it too. So we, we feel fortunate there. I mean, you seem like you have a love of plants. That's mm -hmm. probably safe to say. How did that blossom for oh, you? Well, it actually started, well, actually, when I was a little kid, when I was like six or seven years old, I had a little vegetable garden um, and on the farm. It was a little strip of land that was about 30 feet long and like two feet wide. And I planted strawberries there. And I, and I but after that, I didn't really care much about plants. I mean, um, uh, you know, I worked on the farm and, and um, you were dealing with vegetables and crops all the time, but I never really saw the aesthetics of it. And then I was in, um, went to graduate school 
and I happened to visit um, a Japanese lady. This was in uh, in California. I happened to visit a Japanese lady that had a bonsai nursery and also raised a landscape style um, um, uh, pines and so forth in a bonsai style. And I remember seeing her. I was about halfway through graduate school, and I remember seeing her working on these and it seemed so peaceful and just so relaxing and also really creative and so I thought wow wouldn't it be neat to be able to do that for a living well here I am in the middle of getting a PhD and in, in clinical psychology and and all that and I remembered that and I started taking up bonsai and I started making bonsai I just absolutely loved the way I felt when I created a bonsai or just looked at a, at a bonsai because like the Japanese um, uh, sort of theory is is you look at the at the bonsai uh, and maybe you're in a, a city apartment or whoever you wherever and you look at the the tree and it's supposed to transport you to a tree maybe on a, a cliff on a, in the mountains or on a rocky uh, bluff over the ocean or something like that and so the idea is you look at it and it transports you to that you know um, emotionally and so forth and so I got into bonsai and then um, then in the 80s uh, I was in um and went to Israel and visited there and I saw a banana uh, plantation there and so I was able to get a couple of corms and started raising bananas <laughs> so which is kind of ironic I started raising all kinds of bananas and put up a little greenhouse and at the same time I also started I was still continuing in bonsai and um, I started raising some plants that are called caduciforms and they're a type of plant that form a natural thick trunk um, and they're sort of like um, living sculpture. They're very unusual looking plants. And, um, uh, and but they're, it's uh, more informal than, than bonsai. And so once I got started in that, then I was really addicted. I mean, I just absolutely loved it. In fact, at that point, um, <clears throat> I started a nursery uh, that I never thought would ever make any money. I mean, I started propagating some plants and then... Um, what made you want to do that? Oh, well, I just, I had, I had the plants and I saw they were in flower. And so then I would pollinate them and I would get seed and then I would go, well, how much if that seed would grow? So you plant the seed and then it germinated and soon you had more plants. Well, all of a sudden you had more plants than you really needed and you had room for it. So then I started this little mail order business. This was back in, um, I guess it would in the, in the late eighties. Um, and, um, and so it grew. This was before the the uh, the internet, and so I had a you know little paper catalog that I would mail out to people, and it gradually grew until pretty soon I was shipping plants all over the world, um, and that was that <clears throat> at the same time. I started uh, plant exploration in different countries in the world. Uh, so uh, I would go uh, well all over and I would do some uh, botanical research before I went so I knew what I was likely to find, uh, and especially with this bonsai type uh, style or the, of the caduciforms. Uh, those were the kind of plants that I was looking for. And um, there's really not much of a market for those plants. I mean, it's a specialty market. It's not like something you would go to a garden center and expect to find because they're, they're generally fairly rare and pretty expensive. Um, and so that started me on a quest for looking for uh, these types of plants all over the world. And so I got all a whole bunch of permits that I needed and so forth and started traveling a lot. And um, most of the places that I went to was with a, um, uh, a botanist from Mexico. So I spent, oh, probably, 20 trips to Mexico to um, very remote places in Mexico with my um, my friend uh, Miguel from the University of Guadalajara and so uh, we did a lot of trips like that and then I started branching out and eventually going to um, 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 the Dominican Republic um, oh, let's see Venezuela Ecuador uh, South Africa China Thailand um, all kinds of places, uh, Costa Rica, and looking for these plants. And so I, actually what I would do is I would go and collect seed and then come back and, and propagate them. How did you choose what plants to take home with you? Um, well, I just looked, I just only um, collected seed of plants that I liked. Okay. <laughs> This is as good a reason as any. Yeah, or, and, and actually for a while, I also did some ethnobotanical work too. So I would, um, uh, especially with, um, with my friend uh, Miguel, we would um, maybe go into a village and we would, um, uh, you know, talk to some people or maybe they would see some plants in a, in a marketplace and we hadn't seen before. Well, what's this? And so you'd find out, you know, what it was. And then a lot of the stuff is never documented. And so... Um, so we one particular plant we were actually driving along um, 
the um, a road in Mexico, and we had to stop at a railroad tracks. And in Mexico, there's a lot of uh, where you ever have to slow down. There are vendors there trying to sell you something, and so this guy was yelling out camotes, you know. And so, and I says camotes. I says meow. What's that? Well, camote is a type of uh, a root that's it's it's in the yam family actually, uh, but they call them. Um, uh, Camote del Cerro, or the, 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 the mountain potato, as it were. And so, um, uh, so we started looking into it, and I was in, it's, a, it's in a genus called Dioscoria, and so I was actually studying that genus. And so eventually we figured out where, uh, what, what species it was. And so then a friend of his at another university, another botanist, knew uh, a, a, what they called a Camotero. That was the person that went out and dug these up. And so we arranged to go with them on a trip up in the mountains to, to find these and, and, and dig them up. And so, um, so that's what we did. And so we found that uh, it's, a, it's, it's certainly it's, it's a subsistence type of, of, of thing. It's something that they don't grow as a crop. And so um, they would go and they would they, they'd go very deep in the ground. And so usually they would dig about half of it up and break it off and then, and then take that back and they would cook and you would eat it like potatoes, really. Uh, and then the part that was broken off in the ground would send up a new shoot so you never really depleted the, um, the area. And so that was an ethnobotanical article eventually I wrote about, about Camote del Cerro, the, um, you know, how the, the indigenous people use that particular plant. Otherwise, uh, the scientific community would never know about that uh, particular use of that plant. Uh, but the local people would. So we did a number of articles like that uh, together and, um, uh, and got published and that sort of thing. And so it was interesting. But my, my real love really was with the cadisforms. <laughs> wow, you, you've got some like, really interesting, like, oh man, just, like, I guess adventures. Yeah. yeah. It's kind of like skipping backward. Mm -hmm. uh, so you were starting like a mail order nursery. Like, huh? Yeah, nursery. Yep. As, okay, so I'm millennial. I don't. I can't imagine a world without the internet. Uh -huh. So, like, how do you market something like that in like the pre-internet world? Well, it, it was. Um, um, I would advertise in a couple of magazines, plant magazines. Um, it would start like that, and then I uh, also gave a lot of talks at, at plant conventions and things like that. And so people would get to know me there, and I would hand out my catalogs to people, and um, uh, and you know get their name, address, and so forth, and mail them a catalog if they wanted. And so it just grew like that. And and the other thing is is the the type of plants I was raising. Um, I mean. I, and some of the plants, I was probably the only person in the world that was propagating and grew them. And so it was a very limited market. But um, in the plant collector world, um, word travels fast. If, you, if somebody's raising a plant or a group of plants that you're really interested in, you share it with your friends. You know, I mean, you go, oh, I got this and they, they're all, they want to get it. And so then it's, it's, um, it kind of spreads that way. So, um, but again, like I said, these plants were not something you would go to a, um, a garden center and find. Uh, and, they, and they wouldn't appeal to the average person. Um, you have to sort of have a collector mentality for the unusual uh, to like these sort of things. So that's how it happened. And then eventually, the, you know, my, my, um, um, my customer base grew and, and I was shipping a lot of, of, of plants to uh, Japan and to Europe. And, um, uh, but now that with, after 9-11, the, um, uh, everybody really cracked down on their requirements for um, uh, importing or exporting plants. And it's, the paperwork just became so monumental and so expensive um, that it's just not worth it. In fact, I had a, a fellow from Japan email me a couple weeks ago wanting certain plants, and half of them that he wanted I couldn't send because they're restricted now and you can't ship them out of the country. Um, and that by the time he paid for the paperwork, the paperwork would cost three times as much as what the plants cost. So it was like, so for like $50 worth of plants, it was going to be over $150 just for all the permits that he would need to be able to ship them. So he just like, well, he wasn't interested and I don't blame him. So Yeah, no, that's um, insane. Yeah, and so that's happened. I, it's rare that I ever ship anything to Europe anymore because they have a new, uh, new requirement now that requires the plant be inspected a year before it's shipped. And so it's just not feasible to do that. Um, our nursery inspector thought that it was simply a way to limit plant material coming from um, the United States 
uh, into Europe, so it would give the European growers more of, a, of an edge. I don't know if that's true or not, um, but the, the, the nematode that they were uh, trying to um, uh, keep out has never really been that much of a problem, especially when when plants are grown in artificial media like what ours is. So, so who knows? But it's just become a lot harder to move things around. And so even though the Internet is here now, I mean, uh, I don't really ship much internationally anymore um, because it's the, it's the um, restrictions are just so high and it's so expensive that most people don't want to mess with it anymore. So, so actually there's less material available now internationally than there was before the Internet. <laughs> Although nationally, I mean, there's uh, plants are much more easily accessible. I mean, in the early days, you could Google some of these weird plants that I raised and nothing would come up. I mean, you'd Google it and they would just say, sorry, we didn't find any results for your search, blah, 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 blah. Well, now you put just about any plant in and it will come up. Although, interestingly enough, I had a friend from um, the Huntington Botanical Gardens down in, um, in Southern California gave me a plant a few years ago and gave me the name. It was from Socotra. You, t you, you Google search that, nothing comes up. So eventually it will, but, you know, the Internet's gotten pretty big now, so. <laughs> so do you mind if we pivot kind of in like a philosophical direction sure. for the next? So why do you think it's important for people to follow their own path? Um, well, um, or it, is it? Yeah, I don't think it's important for everybody. Um, I think it takes a certain temperament for a person to be willing to um, uh, to take the risk to follow their own path. Um, because uh, some people are content to um, uh, go to work at a job that they sort of like or maybe not like, but it pays the bills and so forth, and sort of resign themselves to do that and don't have the motivation or, um, or maybe the optimism that it takes to follow your, your bliss, as it were. Um, so that's... Uh, you know, that's, I don't think it's a, a path that's cut out for, for everybody. Um, but if you um, are really motivated to sort of, at the same, I mean, you know, I, I don't think it's a path that, that everybody's cut out for. Um, and I think if you want to, if you want to follow your dream, there's, there's some, you're, you're sort of venturing into a territory that a lot of people don't go into. Um, I, my wife and I saw last winter saw the movie La La Land, and um, I mean it's it's a it's a, it's a story uh, that's been told a lot of times, you know, about a person that um, really likes theater and longs to be in the movies, and so she moves from um, Nevada to Southern California and wants to get into film, and so um, and so we've heard this story many many times, and but I thought it was it was a nice. Uh, story because she had to make a lot of sacrifices for her dream and almost gave up. I mean, if you've seen the movie, I mean, she almost gave up. Well, she essentially did give up, but fortunately for her, her, her friend sort of got her back on track and eventually she um, uh, followed her bliss, you might say, and was successful. Um, but if a person is interested in, um, in following their dream, you have to be really, really practical. It's easy to dream. It's hard to um, to actualize the dream. And so, um, and and a lot of people they dream. Um, well, when I was a clinical psychologist, I worked with a lot of adolescents, and I would speak with these adolescents, and a lot of them were uh, chemically dependent on drugs and so forth. And I'd say, well, what would you like to be when you get out of high school? Oh, I want to be a rock star, you know. And it's like, well, okay, well, that's a possibility. But how many people really get, that want to be rock stars, really get to be rock stars? Well, it's sort of a pie-in-the-sky dream that if a person was really practical about, they could actually go about and try to do that. But unfortunately, I think most people sort of dream about something, never really research it, and, and don't, don't go after it. Um, but if you want to go after a dream, I think it's really, really important that you find out as much as you can about it, especially what it would really be like if you actually achieve that dream. Because some people believe that if they follow a dream, they're going to be happy. And sometimes when you follow a dream, you're, it, it doesn't change your life any, um, although it can. And so I think it, a, lot, a lot of it has to do with um, a person's attitude towards themselves. Uh, do they know themselves well enough to know by following a particular course that, that they're going to be um, 
it's going to be a course that they're going to get a lot of pleasure, a lot of enjoyment out of. Um, and so I think to, to, um, to, to follow a dream, you, you, to be successful at it, you really have to know yourself pretty well. Um, because the last thing you want is to um, achieve the dream and then go, oh, I'm so disappointed. This, is, this did not do what I thought it was going to do. <laughs> you know, I'm, it reminds me of a, a fellow I met years ago who, who it was a Jewish fellow that lived in Iran. And of course, uh, being Jewish living in Iran was pretty tough. This was before um, the Ayatollah and all that um, back in the 70s. Um, and, but he just longed to come to the United States, just thought the United States was, was paradise. And so many, many years he, he worked trying to be able to come to the United States and eventually he came. But he had built in his mind that, that the United States was such a paradise when he got here, he was so disappointed and he became embittered, negative. He couldn't go back to Iran because he figured they'd probably kill him um, and because he was Jewish. And uh, this was after the Ayatollah came in and he just absolutely was a miserable person. I think he's since passed on. But that's, that's the, the, the danger of having a dream that's not based in reality. So that's really important, I think, if a person's going to go after a dream. What advice would you give to people so that they can know whether they have like a certain like level of like self-knowledge to where they can make that assessment? Well, one of the things that I used to do with people back when I was a clinical psychologist was pretend that you already achieved the dream as best as you can conceptualize it. So, um, so for instance, if I wanted to be a rock star, so what would it be like if I was really a rock star? Um, and so then I would have to do some research. Well, what do rock stars do when they're not performing on stage and getting all that adulation from their fans? Get on the bus. Yeah, you get on the bus, you're touring from, from, from town to town, uh, you know, you're, you're spending a lot of nights in hotels and, you know, and really um, pretend and do as best as you can to, to put yourself in that position as if you were had already achieved the dream. And sometimes you'll find out, oh, well, maybe I don't really want to do this um, because there's all these things about the, the dream that, that you have to do that you really don't like, you know, like traveling from town to town on a bus and spending, you know, all your nights in hotels and not really being around anybody, you know, except your other band members, you know. So that is one of the things that I think can really help is, is to do the research and, and pretend like you've achieved the dream and then notice how you feel about it. Is this something that, that, that really, um, that really works? The other thing is, is a kind of a tangential to your question there is what I do here in building this it's you always have to keep your feet on the ground you always have to be practical it's like so um, so you want to create something and then you always have to ask yourself especially if you're in business for yourself is this just something that I want to do that I think would be really neat but will it actually help the business I mean will will we actually make money on this or will we at least break even you know and so sometimes um that, that kind of goes back to keeping your feet on the ground and doing your research with the dream it's like there are a lot of decisions a lot of things that would be wonderful to be able to do but practically doesn't make sense unless you you know have a ton of money that you can just spend on it but most of us don't have a ton of money so we have to be practical and do things that uh if you're starting a business that will actually pay the bills um and so that's what I would recommend is, again, back to the, the person um, uh, pretending like they actually had achieved the dream and then, then paying attention to what their life would be like. Is that the life that I really want to live? So how did you spend your 20s? My 20s? Uh, my 20s, I was actually, my 20s were hard. Um, and my early 20s especially. I was in, uh, went to, to college um, and after a couple years, I sort of got disillusioned with, with college and, um, and dropped out um, and because I didn't know what I wanted to do and um, actually got depressed. I mean, I um, had, didn't know it at the time, but I had all these needs for achievement in the way that I was raised. Um, uh, by, when my parents raised, they raised uh, myself and my two sisters um, to be, you know, goal oriented and, and achievement oriented. And I didn't know what I wanted to do. So I wasn't doing any of that. And so it, the, 
couple of years were pretty tough. That's probably the, the darkest time of my life probably was my early 20s until finally I went back to college and, um, and uh, just because I didn't know what else to do. And I went back to college and I started getting interested in, in some fields. I got interested in geology and then I got interested in psychology. And so eventually I started exploring what a psychologist actually did. And so I ended up getting a master's degree and then eventually a PhD in clinical psychology and then practiced for 20 years. Um, and I enjoyed it, um, but once I got on, once I got the um, on the path uh, to where I was actually um, doing something, you know, and and accomplishing something, it was it was it was a difficult time. But by the time I was, well, I think twenty. 23, 24, I was on the path and, um, and, uh, and, and then it was, it was, it was fine, you know, uh, but it was hard trying to find, you know, what I wanted to do. And I think a lot of people, I mean, you know, you go to high school and, and a lot of people just assume you're going to go to college, but what if you don't like college, you know, and if you don't know what you want to do, you get out of high school. I don't think our educational system really prepares us for, uh, really, figuring out what we want to do with our life <laughs> because a lot of those decisions that you have to make when you're in your in your late teens or early 20s really affect the way you are the rest of your life in terms of maybe a profession although we can always change professions it's never too late to change you know so it's not like if you make this decision you're stuck with it you know for the rest of your life um but it'll be a lot of work if you decide to change <laughs> You have to believe in yourself, and you have to you have to have the hope that this that this will work out. And if you do your homework, you increase the chances that it's going to work out. Yeah. Do you have advice for people? What advice for people looking to find their own purpose? Well, I think the most important thing is to have as many varied types of experiences as you can. Um, is to um, be fearless about trying new things. I don't mean fearless to where you're reckless or you don't take into consequences, but um, somebody says, hey, um, let's go. I want to go skydiving. Want to go with me? And to go, hmm, I've never done that. Is that something I'm interested in doing? Would that be fun to do? Or And to, to do that. And then not just to have a collection of experiences, but to reflect on those experiences to know how you feel notice how you you think about those experiences and that's the way you get to know yourself i think i mean when we're young i mean you know we we pretty much are sponges and we we absorb all this knowledge from our parents and eventually school and so forth um but a lot of times we're not really taught self-awareness and so it's so important i think for us to um pay attention to when we find something that we're interested in to go, oh, I didn't realize I was interested. I'm going to explore that a little bit. And so you can explore it. So like, for instance, myself, uh, I, um, I got interested in, um, in intaglio. It's a type of printmaking where it's an old, old skill that um, was back in the Middle Ages where you would inscribe on a, on a piece of metal and then ink it and run it through a press. And it, it, was, a, it was sort of an indirect way of, of of uh, drawing or painting that sort of thing and so i um i took a class i mean i, didn't, I, I thought this is kind of neat i looked at a lot of um albrecht Dürer and rembrandt etchings and stuff like that and i thought this looks so interesting and i don't have very good art skills and so but i thought you know this is removed enough to just plain drawing that maybe I could make something that <laughs> was actually that i would actually like <laughs> you know and so i took a class and i learned a lot about it and I did it, did it for quite a while, and I and I have appreciation for for printmaking and and taglio specifically that I wouldn't have had if I hadn't followed that um, that interest. Now I'm not I'm still interested. In, I haven't done any intaglio in 30 years, you know. But I know if someday I want to, I could, um, you know, take that uh, and pick up that interest again. And so it's 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 idea about following what you. Um, following your interests um, and then you may find at some point that's actually something you could make a living at. I think that's good advice. Okay, so just like the last couple questions. Um, I already asked you about like advice you'd give. Actually, like I should say people. one yeah. more thing okay, actually sure. um, about, we were talking about how a person goes about um, maybe achieving a dream or, or, or if it's a business or whatever it is. Um, uh, over the years, um, I've learned that inspiration is key. Um, 
because if we're inspired, you might say you get our psychic juices flowing and a person, if a person's inspired, they're interested, they're engaged. And so, for instance, like building this house, it's like I was inspired to build the house. Now, there was a lot of things I didn't know about building the house, but because I was inspired, I had the motivation to learn. And so, and an inspiration can help a person get through a mountain load of diversity of, of adversity. So, uh, I mean, I, I mentioned to you about the, ins- the, the, the problems with the plumbing inspector and getting that in right and all that. I mean, if you're inspired, it's amazing how many hurdles you can jump over um, that you couldn't if you weren't inspired. If you weren't inspired, you say, oh, forget it. I'm going to hire somebody to do this or forget it. I'm not even going to go that anymore. I'm just going to drop it and, and not go that path. Um, and so to me, inspiration has become, uh, become key. And I think a person, a young person, if they're inspired about something, um, they're there's a really good chance that they will be able to achieve their dream, especially if they do the homework, you know, to find out how practical their dream is um, to actually um, come to fruition. So to me, inspiration is, is really, really important key. So how do you get inspired? Well, I, uh, part of it I mentioned already, it's like, especially like for gardens, I go visit gardens. Um, I'll go, um, uh, uh, since our, we have a lot of European influence here in this place, we, we go to Europe and travel, look, and note things that, that really look really interesting. Uh, my wife and I both like to cook, and we both like fine wines, and so we're always tasting wines. Ooh, isn't that interesting? Oh, and so you learn about that, and then it's like, well, I wonder if I could make a wine like that. My latest project now, I really like... Um, uh, Spanish Rioja wines. And so now, this year, I'm going to try for the first time making a Rioja-style Tempranillo. So who knows if it's going to turn out? You know, it's going to cost me a couple of thousand dollars for the grapes. And so if it doesn't turn out, it's, you know, well, you lose a couple thousand dollars. But if it turns out, hey, maybe that may be something that we will continue to do. So inspiration is where you find it. And the important thing is, to, I think, to pay attention to your internal goings on. So if you're inspired about something, you're going to get excited about it. If you're excited about something, pay attention to it. Because if, you, uh, if you're inspired and you, um, you notice it, then the next step is to then follow it and find out more about it and find out if it's something you're really interested in pursuing. And so the inspiration is all over the place. It's just opening yourself up to... Um, to see it. In fact, back when I was a clinical psychologist, I would talk to people and I would, we would talk about, I didn't really talk about inspiration, but um, they would talk about um, the drive to work, you know, and fortunately I don't have to drive to work anymore since I work here. But, but for many years I had to do the commute and all that. And, and, and a lot of times people just, um, just sort of go, well, my life is, this driving this commute is boring. There's nothing I can do about it. I'm just going to endure it. I'm going to be miserable because it's, I hate commuting and traffic and all that. And so what I would encourage people to do would be to find something in that commute that was interesting, that was maybe a little bit inspiring. Maybe it was um, a building that you like the look of, or maybe it was a tree that you saw on your commute, or... Or who knows what it is. I mean, now you could say podcasts. Are yeah, you could say podcasts. A, a great yeah. Way to, it's <laughs> yeah. like it's completely changed my driving experience. Yeah, and it's completely different. But in those yeah. days, there was no such thing as a podcast. Oh, absolutely. And yeah. so you had to find something, you know. And But you're right. A podcast could all of a sudden change that. So so now something that, um, that would be boring and you would discount and you'd be, well, this is a waste of my my time to do this, have to do this to get to do what I want to do. And so it makes more of our lives meaningful, more of our lives interesting. Um, and to me, that's the key. It's not that, that you find this, um, this um, huge dream that you're going to go after, um, but that you find inspiration in, on a daily basis. And maybe one of those things will develop into something big. Um, but if you're being inspired just a little bit each day, you're halfway there. Last question. Do you have a favorite book you've read in the last year or, or ever? If I... um, You know, it's interesting. Um, my wife and I both have been reading a lot of books um, about people that have um, left um, uh, their, their 
well-paying, um, often corporate type job and have followed a dream. And so um, probably one of the first books that we read was Peter Mayle's um, A Year in Provence. And it's about a fellow from, uh, from London who worked at a, I can't remember what kind of an agency it was, in, in, a, you know, in, a, in a corporation. He and his wife decided to quit. He decided he was going to become a writer and they moved to Provence in South France. And so the book is about, he was supposed to write, but nothing came to him. So he ended up writing sort of a diary or or a chronology of their first year. Well, it ended up that it was quite an interesting story. And so eventually um, a movie was made of it and so forth. And so we like this, but we started thinking when we built this, we didn't really want to go to take, it was really risky to do that, first of all. Moving to another country, you don't know the language, and you're going to try to restore this old farmhouse, and you're going to live there and become a writer. I was like, wow, that's huge. We didn't want to take that kind of risk. So we started reading books like that, and a fellow came to um, our wine tasting, um, I don't know, a couple months ago, and he asked about... um, uh, I wrote a little book about our story here. Um, people had encouraged me to, to write about it because a lot of times we don't have time to tell the story. And so, um, so I wrote this little book. He started looking through it and he said, have you ever heard um, of a fellow by the Farinic, um Mate, an author? And I went, no. He says, well, he's Hungarian. And he lived in, um, got out about the time of the uh, Hungarian Revolution, moved to Vancouver, British Columbia, lived there, eventually lived in New York. He was a writer, became a writer. His wife was an artist. Well, they decided to move. They were traveling in Tuscany, and they had been traveling pretty much all their lives off and on, staying in small places. They decided they wanted to be, to find a place where they could call home. And so he wrote a number of books uh, about their experience in setting up um, a home in, in in, uh, in Tuscany. And so one of the most interesting books, it's called, I believe it's called A Vineyard in Tuscany. And it's his story about how he, they decided they wanted to live in Tuscany, how they looked for property and they found this property. Um, and eventually they developed it. They were able to put in grapes. They started a winery that's now very successful. It's, um, it makes world-class wines and, um, and they live in this old medieval house that they restored and they're living their dream. And it's very inspirational. If a person reads that, they will, um, it warms your heart. And so those are some of the books that I've been reading lately. That's really cool. Thank you for your time, and you bet. I really enjoyed talking to you. Well, thanks. It's been fun telling our story. Thanks again, Burl. You can find more about Villa Catalana on Facebook under Villa Catalana and on villacatalanasellers.com. If you liked our conversation, or even if you didn't, be sure to leave a review and rating on Apple Podcasts so that others can discover why try. If you're new to why try, please hit subscribe so you can keep hearing great conversations like this one. For more of Why Try, check out nicholaspeel.com and Why Try the Podcast on Facebook. Also check out the show notes where I have links to Burl's book recommendations, his vineyard, and Why Try. Burl has actually made his own book chronicling the creation of Villa Catalana with lots of pictures. Uh, it sounds really cool, so I'll try and track down details of that for you as well. The music for this podcast is by Cambrian Explosion, whose lyrics turn wine into gold. Careful while you drink it. You can find them on cepdx.bandcamp.com or on Apple iTunes or Spotify. Thanks for listening.